And with that, make sure you're in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be starting in just a little bit in verse 25. A couple weeks ago, as we were coming back uh, from our Colorado mission trip, uh, we were coming through northern Colorado, and we were there on I-70. I-, I love that highway. I've told a bunch of people in the past couple weeks how much I love that drive, the, the beautiful resort towns of Vail and Breckenridge, Colorado. And then as you get into Utah the next day, there in eastern Utah, the scenery is just gorgeous. It's like a slice of heaven. But we were coming through Vail, Colorado. In fact, we were a few miles from Vail, heading west as we were coming back from that week mission trip. And one of our teenagers said, I got to (laughs) go. And we knew exactly what he meant because nature was calling. And so I said, can you wait a little while? We went through this town that we're about to reach Vail on the way to Colorado as we were going to Colorado Springs. We had just gone through that five days earlier. And we knew that there's not much going on in Vail as far as potty stops. And can you hold it? And he says, no, I can't. And so we come to this off-ramp, the exact same off-ramp that we had gotten off five days earlier looking for a place to eat lunch. And we got off that off-ramp, and we wasted about 45 minutes trying to find a place in this tiny resort town where I had this 15-passenger oversized van that couldn't fit in a parking garage. I had to park illegally just to wait for the rest of the group to find out and get back to the van saying they didn't have a place to eat. And so I knew that there was nothing at this off-ramp, but what do you do? The kid's about to burst. And so we pull off this off-ramp, and I says, well, five days ago we turned left on this street. I'm going to turn right. And so we turn right, and we're going past these nice little resorts. There's no restroom. There's no gas station. There's nothing. But I look off to the right side, and there's a little strip mall with, like, two vehicles in the whole parking lot. And there's a little pizza place with the door open. And so we pull in next to this mom-and-pop pizza place, and the teenager hops out and starts running toward the place. And I yell across the parking lot, you may want an adult to ask for you. It may go over better. But no, he had to go. So he runs in that place. Not 10 seconds later, he's exiting because he was kicked out by the owner. He was running in there basically dancing or something. And she says, no, you're not using this restroom. You go up the street. And so he goes up the street to where she had appointed that he needed to go. And I thought to myself, this is a bit of a challenge. I'm going to go talk to this lady. And so I go in this restaurant and talk to the lady, find out her name is Vicky. And I explained to her that, you know what, I know we asked to use the restroom, but we're on this mission trip, and I would have bought something. In fact, I think I may buy a pizza. And after a minute or two, she starts to warm up to the conversation a little bit. Long story short, 20 minutes later, our whole group is sitting out front on the patio in front of a restaurant without another customer in sight. And we're talking with Vicki as we're sharing this large pepperoni pizza together. And we start finding out her story. It had been a few years since she and her husband had bought that little pizza place. They're nearing retirement. She was thinking of selling it. And we found out that her husband wasn't a Christian, and she wanted him to be saved. And so we gathered in a circle, and we prayed for Vicki before we headed out from Vail, Colorado. And as we pulled up the street, going to the next off-ramp, I get to that next on-ramp to go back onto the I-70, And right there on that next on-ramp, if we had only gone one more off-ramp, there were two gas stations where we could have used the restroom. But we had no idea at the time, and it was like, you know what? What a miracle. God had an appointment for us. It was a divine appointment with Vicki that day. 
And we've continued to pray for Vicki in the two weeks since then. Isn't that just like God? Sometimes we have a purpose in mind that we're going to go here to use the restroom. And God says, you only think that you're going to use the restroom. I've got something much more important in mind for you. And I'm so glad we took the time and took that off ramp so we could minister to Vicki. I really do think it made her day. Well, we're in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be picking up in verse 25. It's a, a parable that most of us are very familiar with. The parable of the Good Samaritan is in this passage we'll be looking at today. And I, I think this will be a blessing to you. And let's kind of set the table by looking at those first five verses. Beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, this is a certain occasion, it says, that an expert in the law wants to test Jesus. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was probably, I'm guessing, a couple years into his three-and-a-half-year ministry at this point. He had already chosen all his disciples. If you look at the prior chapter in chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles two by two into all the towns around where Jesus was ministering. And he sends them out to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal the sick and open the eyes of the blind. Jesus had blessed them with power. Earlier in this chapter 10, after the 12 had returned, a little bit later, Jesus selected 72 others and sent them out two by two into the towns to minister to people, to heal the sick and preach the kingdom of heaven. So all this ministry is going on. And meanwhile, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and even experts in the law like this man here began to look for a way to accuse Jesus and arrest him. They wanted to catch him in something he said that was against the Jewish law or catch him in doing something that was somehow blasphemous so they could come up with charges against him to shut him up. And so here, this expert in the law, among others, stands up and asks this question, Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As an expert in the law, some of your translations may say he was a lawyer. In other words, he knew those 613 laws of Moses from the first five books of the Old Testament. He knew those like the back of his hand. He knew them backward and forward, inside and out. And so he asked Jesus the question, well, What do you think? What is the most important law? What's the most important law? Well, what does he say here? Jesus asks him in return, you want to know what the most important law is? You want to know how to inherit eternal life? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Over in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us those two greatest commands. Here, Jesus gives this man an opportunity to share those two greatest commands. 
If you go over to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, you'll find the first of those two. It's called the Shema in Hebrew. It's one of the most famous Jewish prayers. Shema is the Hebrew word translation of our English word hear. And the reason it's called the Shema or the hear is because that's the first word in that prayer beginning in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was in the Jewish mind the core of the Old Testament. This is the most important law among the rabbis. They believe this widely. But then this expert in the law doesn't just stop with the most important law. He also shares the second most important law, similar to what Jesus does in Matthew 22. He quotes Leviticus 19:18, where it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Possibly that Matthew 22 passage had taken place earlier and the expert of the law had heard how Jesus had answered because at the time for many putting these two commands together and saying they were the two most important laws in all the Old Testament, this was revolutionary for many of these rabbis. So possibly he had heard Jesus answer this in Matthew 22. So when Jesus asks him, well, how do you interpret the law? How do you think you're going to inherit eternal life? He gives these two commands side by side. Love God, love people. Say that with me. Love God and love people. It's really a pretty astounding thing to think about. The Ten Commandments can all be summarized in these two commands. The first four, do not have any other gods before me. Don't make for yourself a graven image. Do not misuse the name of the Lord thy God. And Remember the Sabbath day by keeping them holy. The first four commands can all be summarized in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The remaining six commands, honor your father and your mother, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall, shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Those remaining six of the Ten Commandments can all be summarized in the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the man answers well. He gives Jesus a good answer. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then look at how the man responds in verse 29. The expert in the law says, and who is my neighbor? What does it say in verse 29 about why he asked this question? Notice what it says. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, he wanted to make sure he was doing what he needed to do to earn eternal life. He wanted to justify himself. Think about how self-absorbed that is. He wanted to justify himself. And we as Christians know that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. We talk about this often. There is no possible way for you to earn your way to heaven. There's no way for you to be good enough to make it to heaven. There's no way for you to be religious enough to make it to heaven. But how many people do we know around us are trying to justify themselves to make it to heaven? We're surrounded by people who are trying to justify themselves to make it to heaven. One of our occasional attenders has been texting me recently. She keeps on every week having Jehovah's Witnesses come and minister to her, so I'm trying to give her some advice through text. And every week it seems like they bring two more more seasoned Bible students over to her house 
to answer the questions that they're stumped with. And so all these Jehovah's Witnesses keep coming over to her apartment, and I'm just hoping and praying that she stays strong. Because when it comes down to it, the Jehovah's Witnesses, along with the Mormons and so many others, truly when it comes down to it, believe that we are saved by justifying ourselves. If I jump through the certain religious hoops I need to jump through, I'll be able to go to heaven. If I'm good enough and do these good deeds, I'll be able to make it to heaven. If I do what I'm supposed to do, I will make it to heaven. And the fact is, we never can be good enough or religious enough. We never can be, but the man wanted to justify himself, and he asked this question, and who is my neighbor? And as Jesus tells one of the most famous parables of all time, this man will quickly realize that he doesn't carry out that greatest command nearly as well as he once thought he did. Jesus begins in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took, to, took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go, go, and do likewise. May God bless us as we study his word today. Go and do likewise. Hmm. Well, when it comes down to it, this expert in the law was not prepared for a parable. He was prepared for Jesus to say, well, who is my neighbor? Well, that, that's the, uh, the, the Jewish uh, Levite who lives next door to you. That's the other priest that lives up the street. That's the other expert in the law. That's the other rabbi. That's the other true blue Jew that lives right down the street from you. And that's not the answer Jesus gave. He tells this glorious story. He tells this parable. And remember what a parable is. A parable is a parallel story. It's a parallel story that first little prefix in the word parable, para, means alongside. It's from which the, the, the term where we get parallel and, and sometimes uh, even other words that just have that notion of being alongside something. And so Jesus gives this story. Some say a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's not a bad definition. But Jesus gives this very relatable story as a means to communicate a deep spiritual truth. And remember, a parable always does two things. It reveals, but it also conceals. It reveals spiritual truth to those who are hungry, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, those that truly do want to understand what Jesus is teaching and understand what is going on in the kingdom of heaven and how to please our loving Father. But at the same time, it conceals truth to those who were there for a dog and pony show just to see Jesus perform some miracle or eat some popcorn, whatever it might be. 
And so it reveals and conceals, but there's always a glorious spiritual truth within a parable. In order to understand this parable and be changed by this parable, we must place our focus where Jesus places his focus. Amen? We must focus on what he focuses on. Jesus doesn't focus on the man who is assaulted, neither does he focus on the dangerous road conditions, the priest or the Levite. He focuses his attention on the Samaritan. What a lot of times Christian pastors do and Bible students will do is they spend a lot of time speculating about details in a parable that aren't of the essence. And and this is probably one of the greatest examples of a parable where we could do a lot of speculation. We could talk about that road to Jericho. That road to Jericho stretched about 17 miles from Jerusalem, which was about 2,500 feet above sea level, down to the city of Jericho, which is the lowest city on earth, over 700 feet below sea level. And so this was like a 3,300-foot drop in elevation over this 17-mile stretch. And it was notorious in those days as you were going down these windy, uh, twisty, rocky roads uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was notorious for having bandits on it. And these bandits would be hiding behind boulders, and they would jump out and attack someone. Uh, You could spend a lot of time speculating about this guy that ends up getting beat up. And we asked the question, why was he traveling down that road alone? That was dumb. People knew it was a dangerous road. People knew that bandits were camping out. We could talk about those bandits and how horrible they were and what they should have done differently. And why didn't they give their life to the Lord? Why weren't they following even the Old Testament commands? We could talk about all sorts of things. We could talk about the priest who passed by on the other side. Some people look at the priest and say, well, one of the reasons he didn't want to help this man that was beat up on the side of the road is because he would be ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day if he helped out this man that was bloody and bruised on the side of the road and dead for all he knew. And when it comes down to it, that would be no excuse, would it? Especially when you see that the priest is coming down the road, which means he has just left Jerusalem. Any priestly duties for the day will have already been carried out because he's leaving Jerusalem and going back home. And so he couldn't use the excuse that I'm going to be unclean to perform the duties for which I've been chosen as a priest. Same with the Levite. He's going down the road. So he's finished his duties for the day. He couldn't use that as an excuse. I can't get myself unclean. So we could talk about those others, we could speculate about those others, but Jesus tells this parable for one reason. The the other characters and the details of the windy, twisty road, those are all just supportive details pointing toward the main character Jesus is trying to highlight. And that is without a doubt the Good Samaritan. Because the Good Samaritan is the one who demonstrates how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength while loving your neighbor as yourself. The Good Samaritan is the one who Jesus lifts up and shows as an example of how to carry out those commands and receive eternal life. I want to share with you five truths about this Good Samaritan, and I encourage you to jot these down in your handout because I think each of these points is important. First of all, the Samaritan was an outsider. Most of you know this. We've talked about this before. The Samaritan was an outsider. When it came down to it, Samaritans were rejected by the people of Israel. They were viewed as half-breeds. 
Because remember back in the Old Testament times after King Solomon passed away, the nation of Israel split between north and south. Ten of those tribes seceded from the union. They didn't want to follow the line of David. And two of those tribes remained loyal around the city of Jerusalem to King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And those tribes split north and south. Ten in the north called northern Israel or Israel or Ephraim. The two tribes in the south known as Judah. And those ten tribes in the north, 200 years after seceding from the Union, in the year 722 B.C., they were ransacked, attacked, and overthrown by Assyria. And Assyria had this policy in order to keep the conquered peoples from having an uprising. They would interbreed with them. And so they would basically dissolve the nation through forced interbreeding with that nation. And so by New Testament times, 700 700 years later, they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. Yeah, they were part Israelite, but they were also part Assyrian. And so they were despised. A a, a true blue Jew would never even walk on Samaritan soil. They despised the Samaritans. And so isn't it interesting, in this fictional story Jesus has as the hero, the one who's actually loving as God has called him to love, the hero is a Samaritan, an outcast. And so he was the least likely person to be able to be the one that would love as Christ loves. He was an outsider. Second truth I want you to realize about the Good Samaritan is he had other plans that day. He's heading down the road. Is there any doubt in your mind that he had somewhere to go? He had people to see and he had places to go, right? He had plans that day just like the priest did. He had plans that day just like the Levite did. He had other plans, but he allowed God to throw a curveball into his plans and completely mess up his plans. I hope you have an ongoing arrangement with God Almighty and with Jesus Christ. Lord, here's what I have planned for today, but I give you full permission to screw up my plans. Here's what I have in mind to do today. I've got it all worked out, down to the hour, but you have my full permission to completely turn my plans upside down. That Samaritan had better things to do until God gave him the best thing to do. He had other plans. Number three, the Samaritan had, and here it is, my favorite Greek word in the whole New Testament. Some of you may remember it. Splachnitsomai. I love that word. Say that with me if you dare. Splachnitsomai. Whenever I ask you to say that word, the trick is to say it without spitting on the head of the person sitting in front of you. Splachnitsomai. It's a word, remember, that is only used of Christ or by Christ in its verb form. That active form of this noun splachna, splachnitsomai, is only used of Jesus or by Jesus. And so you find it in the story of the prodigal son when the father sees his son that has squandered all of his inheritance with prostitutes and with alcohol, and he's down on his luck. He's going to come back to his father and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be one of your servants. Jesus uses that word splachnitsomai 
am I? The father looks and sees his son in the distance coming home, and he is filled with this gut-wrenching compassion. Jesus uses this word here. This Samaritan man is overcome with pity, overcome with this mercy, this gut-wrenching compassion for the wounded man who could offer him nothing in return. And the reason we use that definition, gut-wrenching compassion, is because the noun form of this word, splachna, comes from a root word that literally means guts. Something from deep inside wells up within this good Samaritan as he sees this man on the side of the road half dead with no one to help him. The Samaritan had this gut-wrenching compassion for the wounded man who could offer him nothing in return. There was nothing that man could offer the Samaritan in return. But number four, the Samaritan got off his donkey and got involved anyway. He loved his neighbor in a tangible way. Isn't that awesome? He got off his high horse. The priest was probably on a donkey of his own. He just crossed to the other side of the road. The Levite was probably on his own donkey. He just crossed to the side of the road. Those guys wouldn't get off their high horse, but the Samaritan would. And number five, the Samaritan is our example. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. I love what the Samaritan does. Sometimes we might have this compassion well up inside of us but we talk ourselves out of doing something about it. We, we feel compassion. We feel pity. We feel mercy. We feel bad for that person who's hurting, but we still pull the reins and cross on the other side of the road. Th- this Samaritan didn't do that. He felt it, and he acted upon it. He gets off his donkey, he checks on the man, makes sure that he's still alive, and then he goes to his little satchel on the side of the donkey, and he pulls out the the, the ointment to put on the man's wounds, the oil that they would have put on the wounds back then. That was about the best thing they had available because they didn't have neosporin. They didn't have hydrogen peroxide. They didn't have iodine, none of that stuff. So he puts the oil on those wounds and he bandages them up and he lifts that man up and places him on his own donkey and he grabs the reins and walks him the rest of the way down the road. What a remarkable thing. And it really leaves us with this question. It's a vital question. Every week God places hurting people in your path. What keeps you from getting off your horse and doing something to help them. On our first day of that mission trip, I asked that same basic question to our young people who were on that trip, the high schoolers, the college students. And I thought it was such an important question to ask because every day, if you think it's not every day for you, certainly at least every week, God gives you opportunities to help people in need. Every week there are people around you who are hurting. Sometimes it's physically, sometimes it's emotionally, sometimes it's spiritually. And I knew going into this week that we had a mission. I knew going into that week that God had told us ahead of time 
that we were going to be ministering to George and Lisa in their home. You've heard the story already. We shared it with you a couple weeks ago. George, 23-year U.S. Army veteran. IED explodes, breaks his back in several places, months of rehab, permanent disability. Because of the flash burns, skin cancer all over his body, stomach cancer. His wife, abusive marriage, got out of that situation, started this ministry, now the fourth largest ministry in Colorado, ministering to women, dealing with domestic abuse, getting them into a safe home, giving them resources to get back on their feet and get their kids in a safe place. So we go in to do projects for that family, and I knew going into that week that that's what God had told us ahead of time. But inevitably, there would be some curveballs along the way. And one of the reasons I love these mission trips, especially when I get to do them with young people, is we put ourselves in that mentality. Over the course of this week, I'm here to serve. Over the course of this week, I'm here to be used by God. And I can't be on my phone as much because Dane won't let me. And I'm not at home with the distractions of the TV or the meal that's on the table or work or school or whatever. And so over the course of this week, I'm available. And I wanted them to know that here's what we think we're going to do this week. We're going to go minister to George and Lisa. But chances are God is going to change up our plans a bit and give us some unexpected ministry opportunities. There could be another teenager that you meet this week that you're going to be able to connect with and minister to them. And God knows that six months down the road, that teenager is going to commit suicide. And God is going to supernaturally and strategically place you in that person's path to help literally save their life. God could be doing that this week. I said, there there may be another teenager in this group. There may be uh, another adult that you encounter this week that God puts you in their path and he has chosen you to minister to them at that point in time for a specific reason you had no idea about ahead of time. And as I spoke those words on a Saturday night, it was just six days later. Let's see, Friday would be, yeah, six days later that we were there thinking we were making a potty stop. And God put Vicky in our path. What a blessing. I remember the first mission trip I took our teenagers on six years ago. Same day of the week, Friday, our work week had been over in L.A. as we were doing some ministry at Skid Row and outside of Skid Row, other parts of L.A. We ministered during the week. And we had our teenagers in a restaurant. I think it was The Habit, if I remember right. And my oldest daughter, Kayla, was just up here singing a few minutes ago. And one of our other students, Edward saw a middle-aged man, obviously homeless, sitting in that restaurant by himself. Edward went up and bought him a hamburger and a drink. And Kayla and Edward stood beside him and prayed over him and ministered the gospel to him. They had no idea going into that week that God would put him in their path. And you can probably think back over your life times when you thought that God had something in mind for you and he had something quite different. So what I'm saying to you is this. Sometimes the man that is hurting on the side of the road is a perfect stranger. And I want you to know that that perfect stranger who is beat up on the side of the road is oftentimes much easier to minister to than the person you know well. 
the person who has stabbed you in the back, the person who has talked behind your back, the person who has insulted you, the person who has hurt you, the person who has made you lose sleep. And I want to ask you today, whether it's the stranger on the side of the road or whether it's the person you know well, what is keeping you from getting off your high horse? What is keeping you from getting off your horse and getting down on your hands and knees if necessary and help that hurting person that God has put in front of you? It's easy to be a priest and pass by on the other side. It's easy to be a Levite. And we can come up with all sorts of excuses for not getting involved. Well, it's the person's own darn fault. They should have known better not to go down the road to Jericho on their own. Serves him right. He should have known better. The Samaritan didn't ask those questions, did he? What was he doing on this road by himself? He didn't care. All he knew was what was in front of him. The man needed help. It's easy to focus on the priest or the Levite and say, they were up ahead of me and I saw what they did. They passed on the other side and they're certainly better prepared to minister to this man than I am. I don't have any medical training. I don't have any formal religious training. If anyone should help, the priest and Levite should help. They didn't help, so maybe I shouldn't help either. Why are you looking at me? They didn't do it. Why don't you look at them, God? Sometimes we say, well, I'll just let the pastor lead that person to Christ. The pastor is better prepared. Uh, Maybe I'll let that medical intern help out that person that's hurting because they're better equipped and better trained. But if you haven't figured it out yet, God isn't terribly concerned in the moment when someone is in need about how well trained you are and about how worthy you are to help in the eyes of the world. He's put that person in your path. And he says, I'm calling you. Some of us stay on our horse because of insecurity. We talked about this a fair amount on this trip two weeks ago. That oftentimes we feel inadequate. I am completely an inadequate God to help this person that's in front of me. That might be true, but you're not alone, are you? Your inadequacy is irrelevant. Some of us don't help because of fear. Your fear is irrelevant because you're called to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Sometimes we don't help because we're callous. We've got hard hearts. And so that first step might be, God, I need you to soften my heart today for what you want my heart to be softened over. God, I I don't feel like I have compassion for my spouse like I need. I don't have compassion for my parents. I don't have compassion for my kids. I don't have compassion for my neighbors. I don't have compassion for my coworkers. They're driving me crazy, God. I don't have compassion for them. Would you give me compassion? Give me that gut-wrenching compassion. And then use me. And I might feel completely unqualified. And I might think there are a thousand people I know who would better be able to meet that need than I than I could. But God, use me anyway. We all have things that keep us on our high horse. And we point fingers at the priest and the Levite, not realizing that Jesus has called us to look in the mirror. 
Ultimately, we have not loved as he's called us to love. Ultimately, we've not had that gut-wrenching compassion as he's called us to have for others. But regardless, by the grace of God through Christ, that can change beginning today. This world should be different because you are in it. The stores you walk into should be different because you're in them. The place you work or go to school should be different because you are there. Your home, your family should be different because God has strategically and supernaturally placed you in that family. And you're not alone. Get off your horse. Help the person in front of you. When you see that person in need, you need not ask all the questions about why he's there. Why she got to that place. Why God didn't put someone else in their path to help them. All you need to know is you are not there by accident. God has chosen you. So get off your horse. Get down on your hands and knees if necessary. And you love and minister to those who are hurting you'll see the Spirit of Almighty God work through you in amazing ways. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the Good Samaritan. He was an outcast, but that didn't stop him from being used by you. He wasn't particularly qualified, but you used him anyway. I pray, O God, that we would love you with all our hearts, love our neighbors as ourselves in tangible ways. Help us, God, to stop clenching to those reins, refusing to get down and help. Help us to do something, anything, to reach out in love to those hurting people around us. And when we don't have the words, speak through us. When we don't know what to do, work through us. And we, when we don't know who's the best person to reach out to, to bring alongside us, to minister in a more effective way, call to our mind and provide that next person to do ministry with us. Father, we want to be able to walk into grocery stores, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, into our families. And make a difference because the Spirit of Jesus Christ is inside of us. Give us a soft heart for those who are hurting. And work through us in powerful ways. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, it's a great day to make that decision. We serve an awesome God. And He is ready to come into your life if you'll simply invite Him. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Repent and turn from your sin. Put Him in the driver's seat of your life. Confess Him with your mouth and be baptized. Oh, that was different. Get right with God today.